0: Now, we need to do what we came here for right now, which is take a look together at God's word. As I said, I want you to meet me in your Bible if you're not already there in Ruth chapter 2. And it's been a couple of weeks, so just by way of reminder, refresher, maybe information if you're new with us today and and weren't here uh, for the first part of this study, but the story of Ruth in a nutshell is this it's the story of of a family. It starts with a man named Elimelech and his wife Naomi and their two sons. They lived in Bethlehem, they were Jews. And in a time of famine, they fled the promised land. They went to the land of Moab in search of food, where they found food, but everything else went wrong. Elimelech, the family father and husband, died. The sons married Moabite women, then the sons died. Apparently the male genetic structure of this family was not all that great. And so, by the time we get to the end of chapter 1, we've got three widows. Naomi, the Jew, and her two Moabite daughter-in-laws, Orpha and Ruth. The story from there goes that, That they hear eventually that God has blessed Bethlehem, blessed the land of Israel once again by sending food. So Naomi says, hey, there's nothing happening here, let's go home. And while Orpah chooses, freely chooses to stay back in her homeland of Moab, Ruth, the Moabitess, goes with Naomi. And they return really to Naomi's homeland as refugees, as people desperately in need. And and we've talked about that, that the plight of widows in those days was, was not good at all, they had to fend for themselves, and so they come back, and, and in order to literally to eat in order to survive, what we saw last time we were together in the first, time, first half of chapter two, was that Ruth, the young woman, decided to go glean in the field and we're going to talk more about that again in a moment to gather grain. Again, that they might simply have enough in order to survive. And we sort of left off right in the middle of that scene a couple of weeks ago. We finished out in chapter 2, verse 13. So this morning, I'm going to begin reading in chapter 2, verse 14, down through the end of the chapter, verse 23, Whereas I invite you to follow along now in your Bible, this is what the Word of God says. It says at mealtime, this would have been the noon meal on Ruth's first day gleaning in the fields. At mealtime, Boaz, he's the landowner in whose field she is working, said to her, said to Ruth, come here that you may eat of the bread and dip your piece of bread in the vinegar. So she sat beside the reapers. Those were Boaz's hired hands and he, Boaz, served her roasted grain and she ate and was satisfied and had some left. When she rose again to glean, Boaz commanded his servants saying, let her glean even among the sheaves and do not insult her. Also you shall purposely pull out for her some grain from the bundles and leave it that she may glean and do not rebuke her. So she, Ruth, gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. She took it up and went into the city, and her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also took it out and gave Naomi what she had left after she was satisfied, again her leftovers from lunch meal. And, and her mother-in-law, verse 19, said, then said to her, where did you glean today? Where did you work? May he who took notice of you be blessed. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The name of the man with whom I work today is Boaz. Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed of the Lord, who has not withdrawn his kindness to the living and to the dead. And again Naomi said to her, This man is our relative. He is one of our closest relatives. Then Ruth the Moabite said, Furthermore, he said to me, You should stay close to my servants until they have finished all my harvest. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with his maids so that others do not fall upon you in another field. So she, Ruth, stayed close by the maids of Boaz in order to glean until the end of the barley harvest and the wheat harvest. And she lived with her mother-in-law. Well, several years ago, our family took a trip to the Wisconsin Dells, the first time we'd ever gone to one of their great big water parks. That I know many of you have visited in, in the past as well, and one particular evening, as we, were, we had been at the Dells a couple of days, and, and uh, my son, I think it was my son Cole and I, who was probably about 10 years old at the time, we had been at the water park, and we were making our way back up across the way to our hotel room when we rounded a corner on a floor. I don't think it was our floor, but we rounded a corner, and there in this empty hallway, we found a little six- or seven-year-old boy. He was all by himself, and, and he was scared, and, and he was crying. And, and when we asked, you know, what's the matter? What's wrong? And we explained that he'd gotten lost. Somehow, some way. he'd gotten separated from his family. And of course, in a place like that, in a hotel, all the rooms, all the halls, all the doors looked the same, and he had no idea where his family's room happened to be. And so we assured him we'd try to help. And so I immediately, as Cole stood there with him, I called security, a guard came, and in fairly short order, we were able to figure out who this little boy was and where his family was staying, and it was on another floor entirely, so we took the elevator, went up, knocked on the door, and, and the door was opened by his parents, who until that very moment hadn't known that he was gone. It's a very home alone kind of story. They didn't know he was gone. Apparently, they were part of a much bigger family gathering of nieces and nephews and cousins, and all the kids thought he was in one room, of course. The parents thought he was in the kids' room. And so to see a security guard, a stranger, his son, and their little six- or seven-year-old boy standing there was kind of overwhelming to them. And so while they thanked us, mostly they just, in this great whirl of emotion, of relief and and shock and surprise, just pulled the little boy into their room, embraced him. I don't know what happened after that, but they embraced him. (laughs) said, thank you, and they shut the door, and, well, I assumed that was that, but it wasn't. Because the next morning, (laughs) the next morning as we made our way back down from our room as an entire family, my wife and I and our kids, back down to the water park, and we went in the first water park area we were headed toward, And we were making our way, me and a couple of the boys, toward the water. Suddenly, and without any warning whatsoever, a tall, bikini clad woman leaped up from her chair and began running in my direction. I did not know who this woman was. And she ran up and full on bear hug embraced me. I'm thinking, my wife is here. I'm a pastor. I have no idea what's going on. And then through her tears, she says, thank you for rescuing my little boy. Thank you for finding him. I'm like, you're welcome. (laughs) I learned a lot of things that day. A lot of lessons that have stuck with me. But the one that is relevant here this morning is that when we are in need of rescue, Or someone we love is in need of rescue. It doesn't much matter who does the rescuing, friend or stranger. We're just glad that they did it. That someone cared enough to come to us in our place of need. And I share that with you because that's sort of where we are this morning in returning to our study of Ruth. Because as I said a moment ago, the last time we were together, what we saw was Ruth venturing out by herself to gather leftover grain from the Bethlehem fields. And I told you at the time that that was a task only done by the poorest of the poor. The neediest of the needy would go out into the fields at harvest time to collect grain and that she was doing that again simply so that she and her mother-in-law Naomi might be able to survive but what we also saw last time is that in doing so, in going out in the field to glean among the poorest of the poor, she just so happened, quote unquote, she just so happened to land in the field of a man by the name of Boaz, a wealthy man by the name of Boaz, who, who suddenly, very unexpectedly, and, and probably to Ruth uh, with, without any understanding whatsoever why, he began taking special measures on Ruth's behalf. He began doing things to care for her, doing things to provide for her. He began taking measures that, as we saw in what we just read, continued right on in throughout the day into the passage we just read. And, and while our primary focus going forward, where we're really headed with the message this morning, is to take a look at the, the nature of the care that he showed her. The nature of the, of the love and the provision that he offered to her. That's where we're headed today. And then and to talk about how it points us to the person of Jesus Christ. Before we do that, there's, there's an important detail we need to take note of in this passage that isn't evident to us in our English translations, but I want to assure you is very quickly going to become the primary theme of the rest of the story of Ruth. And that is the fact that Boaz, let me give this to you first and then we'll sort of get into the heart of where we're headed this morning. But the first thing we need to take note of here so we understand what's happening, what God is doing behind the scenes, is to look at Boaz and understand that he in what he is about to do for Ruth is playing the role of what was called a kinsman redeemer. Now some of you have heard of the kinsman redeemer before, others of you haven't. Some of you say, yes, I've heard that, but I don't recall what it was. Well, here's the deal. If you look in your Bible at verse 20, I want you to do that with me right now. When Naomi speaks to Ruth, Ruth goes out, gleans, comes home, explains to Naomi what's been going on throughout the day. In the latter half of verse 20, it says that Naomi said to her, said to Ruth, this man is our relative. Indeed, he is one of our closest relatives. Relatives. Your Bible may say family guardian, family redeemer, something of like that, something like that. There's a number of ways it's translated from Hebrew into English, but what I want you to know is that the Hebrew root word for whatever your Bible says, their mind says closest relative, the Hebrew root word was Goel. Kind of spell it in English just the way it sounds, Goel. And, and, and the, the literal meaning of Goel is to redeem, to buy back. To acquire something at a price, usually, that that had been lost, that had been removed or or taken away. But in this particular context, and the way Goel is used throughout the rest of the story of Ruth, what it specifically, literally means, the expression Naomi used in Hebrew was kinsman redeemer. Now, in those days, in ancient Israel, everybody knew what a kinsman redeemer was. But, of course, we may not because there's not such a thing in our culture. So the deal was this. When in ancient Israel, a family patriarch would die, usually suddenly, maybe early, unexpectedly, and typically when there was no clear male successor heir apparent to come up and take the father's place who died the husband who died as uh, as patriarch of the family there was no one to succeed him it fell to another male blood relative and the nearer the male blood relative the better but it fell to a male blood relative to step up and and to step in and to ensure among other things that the family's land stayed in the family. that that the surviving family didn't fall into poverty, that their their needs were met. And, if necessary, and this is part of where the story of Ruth will be going, it was even the responsibility, when necessary, of a kinsman redeemer to marry the widow, to marry the surviving wife of of the male blood relative who had passed away, specifically for this reason, in the hopes that together they would have a son. And that that son would then become the family's heir apparent and all the the land and the wealth and everything that belonged to that family, but most importantly, the family name would continue for further generations. And and so more simply put, let me see if I can give you, this isn't probably the greatest definition of a kinsman redeemer you're ever going to hear, but it's the one I came up with. So here it is. A kinsman redeemer, what I'm trying to tell you is this, a blood relative, a male blood relative whose job it was to rescue whose job it was to rescue and then provide for loved ones in need. A kinsman, kinsman redeemer's job was to rescue and provide for loved ones in need. And as I said, there's a whole lot more about this idea, this, this reality that we're going to explore in, in weeks to come. But for the moment, with that set, because that is the, bo- the role Boaz is going to begin to play... What I want to do now for the remainder of our time together this morning is talk about how Boaz, whether he yet understood where things were going or not, but how he expressed his care here. How did specifically Boaz express care for Ruth through Ruth to Naomi, and and of course, what is there in that that can be learned and and taken to heart by us? And to that end, in the time we have left, there are four quick things I want to show you. Four things about the care that that Boaz showed Ruth, the first of which is this, as we begin walking through the passage together, is that his care for Ruth in the role that he was coming into, number one, his care for Ruth was proactive. The care that Boaz showed Ruth was proactive. This week when I was reading, thinking about verses 14, 15, 16, I want you to look at those right now with me in your Bible. You know, I couldn't help but wonder if the kind of things Boaz began doing here for Ruth was kind of sort of just how Boaz always rolled. If this is just the kind of guy he was. It seems unusual to us, but was it to them? Uh, As as if to say, as as he goes about doing these things and giving orders to meet Ruth's needs, you know, there's a little band of his hired hands over here in the corner going, man, there's Boaz being Boaz again. Just doing his thing, reaching out and taking care of people because that's the kind of guy that he is. And of course, there's no way to know that for sure if he did this sort of thing for others. But what we can be sure of is this Boaz didn't have to, at least at this point, not yet knowing his role, didn't have to do any of this for her. He didn't have to, verse 14, provide her with a noontime meal. He didn't have to, verse 15, ensure her physical protection, and he didn't have to, verse 16, take special measures to ensure that by the time the day was done, she would have far more than a typical day's worth of gleaning would ever normally bring. Because remember, we talked about this last time, that in those days, all the law required of a landowner, all the law required of of a farmer at harvest time, was that he would leave the corners of the field untouched. Go harvest the field, but don't touch the corners. And if, as your harvesters, because everything was done by hand and on foot, if your harvesters drop stuff along the way, you got to leave that there too, and that's what the poor of the land, a gleaner like Ruth, is entitled to come and take. Go to the corners, pick up the scraps. That's all the law said he had to do. What I want you to see about Boaz is that apparently he was not a man who merely lived by the letter of the law who thought, what's the bare minimum I can do to you know keep God happy and look good before the people? He clearly was not that kind of guy. And furthermore, as a rich man, even even if he is a a generous character, even if he is sort of a a, a nice guy in this way, he certainly could have, as a rich man, as as the boss. He could have had others handle these things for him. But I want you to see that he didn't do that either. Look again at at verse 14. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, now he's got servants, he can send a servant out, but he goes to Ruth and he says, no, no, you you come and sit. I know you're not a hired hand. I know you're not on the payroll, but you come sit with us as if you are. And then it says, she sat beside the reapers, latter half of verse 14, and he served her roasted grain. These are little things, but they're important. Little things add up. They give us a profile of what this guy is like. He served her roasted grain. She ate, was satisfied, and even had some left over. So for starters, here's what I'm saying. His care for her was proactive. Secondly, and and right along with that, we need to note, and we're seeing this already, the care Boaz extended toward Ruth was generous. He was a a man of initiative. He was a man of of action. He was also, secondly, a man of great generosity. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever just, as you go through life, life in the church, life in the world, Notice that there's a link between generosity and joy. Generosity and joy. I mean, we all know there's a lot of cranky rich people in the world, you know? People who've got more than enough, more than enough to share, and they may even share it. But but you look at their life and you listen to their voice and their words, and they're not joyful. A lot of cranky rich people. They're also in the church a lot of grudgy givers. People who give because, again, well. I guess that's what we're supposed to do. They tell me that every Sunday, put something in the box, and I don't really want to do it, and I'm not really excited about doing it, but, but tell me how much I have to do in order to look good to God and hopefully hold my chin up in the company of the church. Not Boaz. That's not the kind of guy we're looking at here whatsoever. And, you know, if you look around, I, I think it's safe to say it's, it's just it's hard to find a truly honestly generous person who also sort of doubles as the neighborhood crank, right? As a grouchy person. They just, they just don't go together. Because those who understand generosity radiate joy. And I think that's how I say that, because I think that's how we're supposed to picture Boaz here. Smiling, maybe even just laughing to himself despite himself, as he is, is giving his servants some instruction in verse 16 when he says, Hey, listen, guys, come over here. Now he's talking to his hired people, his harvesters. Guys, as you go through the fields, I, I don't want you just to leave the, the accidental, you know, the stuff that slipped out of your hand behind. I want you to purposely, I want you to go to the sheaves before they're all tied up, the bundles, and I want you to pull stuff out and just drop it in the path. And by the way, don't rebuke her. Don't let her let on you that, that we're doing this. And, don't make her feel silly for being the beneficiary of such generosity. I think he's, he's doing this with a spirit of joy. And I think we should be doing the same as we read verse 17, because if you read verse 17 or follow along as I read it for us again, it says so. She, Ruth, gleaned in the field until evening, and then she beat out. She went to the threshing floor and took all that she'd collected, and she beat out what she had gleaned to get the the good stuff from the bad stuff, and it was about an ephah of barley. Now, when I read that, you're supposed to say, Wow! So let's try it, all right? Verse 17, She gleaned in the field till evening, then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. Now, you're saying, why am I supposed to be impressed, right? Well, the reason you're supposed to be impressed is because an ephah of barley, it means nothing to us. I didn't know what it was until Wednesday afternoon. An ephah of barley is five and a half gallons of grain. Think of a five-gallon bucket. It's 30 pounds worth of barley. Now, in those days, the typical male ate or, or accounted for one or two pounds a day. Now, Ruth is coming home with 30. In other words, she and And Naomi are set, what, for weeks after one day's worth of work through no extra effort of her own. It's much, much more than any typical Hebrew gleaner would ever collect in a single day. And here's the thing about that. That kind of generosity, I mean, at the bottom line, that cost Boaz what? Nothing, right? It did not impact his bottom line. He did not go hungry, nor did anyone else in his employ. But it was revolutionary for these two women. Suddenly, they are not literally living hand to mouth day to day, hoping tomorrow we can get something. They are set. They're set for the foreseeable future. And that's why I want to suggest that as a result, Boaz's care for Ruth was not only number one, proactive, and number two, generous, number three, his care for Ruth was liberating. It was liberating care. You know, when Steve Brown, who's one of my favorite Bible teachers uh, for a number of years, he was a professor of preaching at Reformed Seminary in Orlando. And and when he was a professor there, he was also a pastor at the same time, but as a professor of preaching, he would begin every semester the exact same way. He'd, He'd call the class to order, he'd begin the class, and then he would immediately give every single student in every single class an A, in ink, in the grade book, and say, listen, if you show up and do the work, there's your A right there, guaranteed. And the reason he explained that he would do that, I think eventually they made him stop doing that, but for a while he got away with it. And the reason he did, his philosophy was, listen, if I take away the pressure of grades, you can actually learn what you came here to learn. You as my students can learn how to preach rather than simply figure out how to pass in other words he liberated them he set them free from the from the pressure of merely trying to perform and to get by and i want to suggest to us that the same basic thing is being done here for ruth by Boaz, Because if you pay close attention, even to just the section we read, and there's plenty before, that came before that says the same thing, but even in this morning's text alone, there are several little hints dropped that the world in which Ruth and Naomi were living, though it was the promised land, though they're living in Bethlehem, was a dangerous place. Look again with me. Go back up to verse 15. He has to say to his own servants, let her glean even among the sheaves and don't insult her. Verse 16, leave it that she may glean and do not rebuke her. And then you get down to verse 22 as Naomi and Ruth are going over the story of what God had done for them or what Boaz, God had done through Boaz in that day. Naomi says to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you do as he said, that you go out and harvest with his maids so that others do not fall upon you in another field. And yeah, that means exactly what you think it does. It's a dangerous place. A difficult place, especially for a young widow as Ruth was. And, and my point is simply this. It's tough to gather grain if you're always looking over your shoulder. It's tough to do what you came to do if you're constantly worried that you might not live to see the end of the day. That you might be done harm. And so, because he had the power to do so, Boaz just removes the distraction. He just assures her, you have nothing to worry about. Go back to verse 21, Ruth's report. Furthermore, he, Boaz, said to me, stay close to my servants until they've finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, it is good that you do this, again, that you go out with his maids so that others do not fall upon you in another field. So she stayed close by the maids of Boaz in order to glean until the end of the barley harvest and the end of the wheat harvest as she continued to live with her mother-in-law. And what I'm saying is simply this, by trusting Boaz to keep his word, By hearing what he had to say and trusting that he meant it and would keep it, she was liberated. What? To do the job she came to do. To carry out the assignment that she had accepted. To, listen, to live and work contentedly in the present moment. In the present moment. Without having to worry about tomorrow or what could happen around the next bend. I would suggest it probably also significantly diminished the temptation to want to go and glean in anybody else's field. Why? Because I have someone watching over me here. Someone protecting me. Providing for me. And I would have you note in verse 23 that far from making her complacent. You know sometimes there is a temptation when you feel like you're all set to sort of coast right. To dial it back. I mean he's, he's not, not Ruth. So she not only gleaned till the end of the barley harvest, then she went on to the wheat harvest, which came after the barley harvest, and was back in the field, presumably working every single day. And that leads us to the fourth and final thing that we need to see about Boaz's care for Ruth. It was proactive, it was generous, it was liberating, and as we sit here this morning, 3,000 years later, it is also incredibly instructive. His care, Boaz's care, the things he did for Ruth, is incredibly instructive. You know, at this point, I think I said this already, or at least noted this, that it's not exactly clear how well or or even if Boaz, Boaz grasped that he was, in fact, the kinsman redeemer for this family, the Goel. But I'd suggest to you that based on what we've looked at so far, he was well qualified for the job. That he had all the character qualities you would want in someone who is coming to your rescue. Proactive, generous, liberating. And when you put all that together, that, those qualifications to be the goel, the kinsman redeemer, I'd like to suggest it brings us back around to the other Hebrew word we've been talking about in our study of Ruth so far. And that is the word hesed. Hesed, I told you a couple of weeks ago, hesed is the primary Old Testament word that describes the love of God for sinners. And it's too complex to to translate just into one or two English words. So the definition I gave you of hesed, just by way of reminder, hesed is a a covenant term combining the warmth of God's fellowship and the security of his faithfulness. Provision, protection, rescue. Hesed a love that refuses to let go. And that is literally, precisely what Naomi said in verse 20. Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed of the Lord who has not withdrawn his hesed. That's the Hebrew word behind kindness. To the living, that's she and Ruth, and to the dead, that is their deceased husbands. And Naomi said to her, This man is our relative. He is one of our goels. But he has shown us Said, kindness. And, and by calling such care instructive, what I mean is, is this. And here's really the bottom line for us this morning that, that Boaz's actions toward Ruth here are just a vivid illustration of what Jesus Christ has done for us in a couple of ways. One of which is found in Titus chapter 3. If you want to turn there with me quickly, we're going to go to two verses i comment on them briefly, give you a big idea, and then we're done. But I want you to go with me to Titus chapter 3. Because in Titus chapter 3, the Apostle Paul gives what I think is just one of the, the most vivid, most vibrant expositions on the gospel, on what we just celebrated a Sunday ago with the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And when I say that Boaz's actions are instructive, they illustrate what Christ has done for us, listen to these words and see if you don't agree. Titus 3, verse 4. When the kindness, if this were written in Hebrew, it would be hesed. When the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us. Proactive, right? He saved us, not on the basis of deeds we've done in righteousness, but according to His mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. In other words, God did a whole lot of stuff for us before we even knew to ask for it. Before we even knew we needed it. Not only that, verse 6. He did all of this by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. There's the generosity. And then verse 7. So that. Why did he do these things? So that being justified by his grace, we would be liberated, made heirs, made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. I don't know about you, but that sounds an awful lot like a kinsman redeemer to me. The very best kind of all. And in the same way, here's the thing. In the same way that all Ruth had to do was accept the kindness of Boaz. That's all we have to do in response to Jesus in order to be rescued by him. Repent of our sin. Come to his feet. Ask his forgiveness. Call on him as savior. We simply have to recognize we need rescuing and then respond to what Christ has done for us. So it's illustrative in that way, instructive in that way. It's also instructive, however, for those of us who have been to the foot of the cross, who have trusted Jesus Christ in another way. In the sense of something Jesus continues to do for each one of us who are his own and this actually happens to be something that without a doubt is the number one lesson God has been teaching me in the last year through pandemic and quarantine and derecho and battling COVID for several weeks and just the everyday stuff of life I don't know what lessons God has been teaching you, but there is a very clear lesson that God has been teaching me and he keeps bringing back to my attention and I believe it is illustrated in the actions of Boaz here. And for that, I want you to turn quickly to Psalm 46.1. Very, very quickly to Psalm 46.1, a verse that when I read it, I know many of you could probably recite yourselves from memory, maybe others not, that's okay. But this is what it says. Psalm 46.1, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in times of trouble, an ever-present help in times of trouble. Now, I don't know about you, but I've always thought of that verse. When I think of that verse, and I've known it a long time, but I've always thought of that as the message, the big idea of that verse is, hey, God's always going to be there when I need him, right? When trouble comes, he'll be there. When, when I'm stuck and don't know what to do, he'll be there. And, and that's certainly true, but that's not what the psalmist is saying. The psalmist is saying when he calls God an ever-present, a very present help, it means he is your provider, he is your protector, he is your rescue. Guess what? Right now. Right here. Right where you are today. Whatever the need or opportunity of the moment may be be he is our rescuer in in other words what i'm saying is this is is just like boaz with ruth having solved your problem of eternity in the, a, a, at the cross the biggest problem we all have what's going to happen to me when i die how can i be reconciled to god listen if you're a believer god took care of that right big problem solved biggest problem solved but having done that having taken care of eternity at the cross, you know what Jesus Christ has done for you, each and every one of us? He's liberated us to live fully present lives. Right here. Right now. Good day, bad day, whatever kind of day. This day. Without any need whatsoever to fret about tomorrow. Or what the day after that might hold. No need let me ask you something as a believer in Jesus Christ this morning does that sound like your life not fretting about tomorrow not worried about next week next month next year most of us that's, that's not our lives we are worried we are fretters we are concerned about all sorts of things but the big idea of today's message is that as rescuer and provider as savior and lord listen to me There isn't a single detail. Everybody say, not a single detail. detail. There is not a single detail God doesn't have covered. Not one. There there is no two minutes for rebuttal on this one from anybody. He has every detail covered in your life, in our church. And guess what? This may be news to some of you, even in Washington, D.C., He's got it all covered. We are far too worried about far too many things about tomorrow, and we're not living present lives today. And Boaz did what he did so Ruth could be present in the moment and serve, and that's what he wants of us as well. So take heart in what your kinsman redeemer has done and live your days accordingly. You will surely be better for it and I have a hunch that others will begin to see the joy of Jesus in you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we don't I don't. Lord, there's a huge part of my heart that doesn't believe in practice what I just said. And I repent of that today, Father. The fact that I am a worrier, that I even with eternity solved, and all the promises of your word, I still battle moment by moment, day by day, to trust you for tomorrow so that I can be present in the now. And Father, if, if there is a spiritual pandemic in the church, I think that might be it. That like Martha, Martha, we are worried about so many different things, and they're legitimate things. But as a result makes it very hard to live present lives of worship and of joy and of servanthood and of gratitude. Father, it's really hard for the light of Jesus to shine in us when everything else is what's on our mind and coming out of our lips. Father, would you help us today to whatever degree, whatever extent is needed to, to not just believe what your word says, but to Let that belief be transformative as we yield to you and surrender to you and trust you that you are our rescuer. You are our redeemer. You're our kinsman redeemer. You shed blood for us to be saved. Father, I thank you that as we leave here today, and we are going to go separate ways into separate situations and Gonna face all sorts of different things. Father, I thank you that somehow in the mystery of your grace, the kinsman Redeemer walks beside each and every one of us, ever present, always there, rejoicing in the in the blessings and, and carrying us through the pain, showing himself, Jesus, showing yourself faithful every step of the way. Father, I pray as always that you would take the things of truth that we've looked at here this morning and seal them up in our hearts and move them to our hands and feet. And you cause everything else of the flesh, Lord, of distracting, of even of error, just let it all slip away so that we walk out these doors, we go back into life, we go home rejoicing in Jesus alone. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.